History of Persia is a Hopful Media Podcast production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park In his final days, Alexander the Great's generals asked him who should succeed him. Alexander's answer, the strongest. Taken literally, this would see the close of the classical Greek age, an age thousands of years in the making. Join me, Mark Selleck, as I go back to retell the story of ancient Greece in my series Casting Through Ancient Greece. We will cast our way back to its beginnings, all the way through to the spread of its culture throughout the known world, thanks to Alexander and his generals. You can listen and subscribe to the series at www.castingthroughancientgreece.com or you can listen on your favourite podcasting platform. Don't forget to follow the series over on Twitter at Casting Greece or on Facebook at Casting Through Ancient Greece. I look forward to seeing you there. If you're listening to this, you probably know that the United States of America gets involved in a lot of foreign wars. We all know the big ones, World War I, World War II, Korea, sort of, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, Iraq again. But before and in between all that, the story a lot of us heard in school is that the U.S. military didn't get out much. Turns out... That's kind of a blatant lie. I'm going to guess a lot of us don't know about the multiple Spanish-American wars, the wars that led up to the Battle of Little Bighorn, or the baffling number of times we invaded Mexico. Odds are you've never even heard of things like the time the Marines invaded Taiwan or the Oconee Wars. I'm Trevor Cully host of the new podcast, America Secret Wars, where I am going to sit down with a guest in each episode and dive into the history of all the forgotten and overlooked times that the United States deployed military force against other nations. You can find America Secret Wars at secretwarspod.com on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 65, The Peace of Callias. Well, here it is, folks. The end of the war. 18 episodes and 30 years since Xerxes began his invasion of Greece. 34 episodes and 60 years since Athens first pledged earth and water to Darius and then reneged on that submission. In the reign of the third king of kings since this all began, and innumerable Athenian demagogues and aristocrats vying for power, everyone involved was just tired of this. The last two episodes covered the final stage of the Second Greco-Persian War, as Athens intervened in an Egyptian rebellion only to become overwhelmed with a war with Sparta much closer to home. Meanwhile, King Artaxerxes I handed responsibility for the Greek war over to his satraps, Artabazos in Phrygia and Megabyzos in Assyria. They rebuilt the Persian fleet one last time and crushed the Athenians outside of Memphis, and tried to defend Cyprus from one last Athenian invasion in 451 BCE from a position on the mainland. Ultimately, the Athenians couldn't take either of the Cypriot cities they had besieged, and Cimon, long-time thorn in the Persian side, died on the island, forcing Athens to withdraw. The Persian response to Athenian aggression on Cyprus may have been somewhat tepid because Artaxerxes gave orders to open negotiations with the Athenian government and find a diplomatic solution. And this brings us to one of the great debates of Greco-Persian history, how and why this war ended, if it ever officially ended at all. Sometime in or before 465 BC, an Athenian aristocrat called Callias was sent to the imperial court as Athens' ambassador to the great king. He was far from the only Greek emissary traveling through imperial lands at the time. Herodotus mentions this emissary in conjunction with an embassy from Argos arriving around the same exact time. And of course, Themistocles was also making his way east alongside the constant trickle of Greek rebels and exiles from across the Mediterranean. Callias had been in and around Greco-Persian politics for most of his adult life. He began life as a hereditary priest, and as the story went, he fought at Marathon in 490 in his priest's robes. During the battle, he fought in the center and ended up separated from the Athenian lines, and this is when he supposedly encountered a Persian, who interpreted his robes as a mark of royalty. The Persian showed this confused priest the location of some kind of treasure hoard within the Persian camp, and Callias killed him anyway, but used the treasure as a foundation for some wise investments and a small fortune. His wealth, combined with status and reputation, allowed Callias to climb the ranks of Athenian society for the next 30 years of political and military service, until he was sent to Persia. Once there, 
he was tasked with negotiating with the great king on Athens' behalf. There you have it, all of the information in this episode that we know for certain. Alright, we're done, we'll wrap up now. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. No. Of course, you'll notice that this doesn't include anything about what he actually got up to in those negotiations. Traditionally, the product of this Athenian embassy to the King of Kings has been called the Peace of Callias. And this topic alone can and has formed the basis for more than one intensive PhD thesis. For that reason, I'm staying as close to the surface as I can today. I've got other stuff I want to talk about, and quite frankly, you kind of have to be eyeballs deep in classical studies to follow most of this crap. Like, a key part of one of the arguments involved 19th century German academics arguing over what constituted a fragment of one ancient text in another ancient text kind of eyeballs deep in classical studies. If you're a student looking to learn about historiography, or a professor slash TA looking for a good way to teach that component of history, the piece of Callias would actually be an excellent topic. You've got some pretty consistent debate stretching so far back that some of the texts debating it 
are considered primary sources by modern historians debating the exact same questions. So here we go. A historical debate that manages to weave in Herodotus, Thucydides, what feels like most of the major Greek writers of the 4th century BCE, Diodorus, Plutarch, and a couple of Byzantine sources who were writing more than a thousand years later, but still had way more sources than we do now. The trick is, Herodotus is only here for one vague reference. Thucydides is mostly noted for not saying anything, and all of the later sources are just relying on 4th century sources that we don't have anymore. That really leaves us with those 4th century writers. Complicating things further, most of them were not historians, and the ones that were, none of their histories have actually survived intact. So that boils down to a bunch of ancient texts all trying to argue rhetorical, legal, political, and philosophical points, often only recorded in fragments themselves, and most of them don't provide any dates. Those have to be gleaned from ancient sources quoting these earlier texts. They fall into three basic camps. The first camp argues that the Peace of Callias is entirely a myth, fabricated in the late 5th century for political purposes. The second argues that it did in fact exist, and the peace was negotiated by Callias and Xerxes following the Battle of Eurymedon in 465. The third finally argues that the peace was negotiated by Callias and Artaxerxes in 449. And of course, all of those positions have been copied by different modern historians. Unsurprisingly, they all have major problems. The mythicist camp relies heavily on how little the other two camps can agree on, using the absence of evidence in some sources as evidence for absence altogether. And the word of Theopompus, a Chian historian writing in the late 4th century BCE. Theopompus wholly denies the existence of the Peace of Callias on the basis that he saw the supposed monument recording the treaty in Athens, and it was written in a style of Greek letters that was not common in Athens until many decades after the treaty was signed. See, I told you, eyeballs deep in classics, this stuff. The two believers camps, even in ancient times, proposed many explanations for this discrepancy. By Theopompus' time, there had been many anti-Persian and pro-Persian movements in Athens that may have destroyed and rebuilt the monument. The language of these treaties never seems to have specified which Persian king was making the agreement, and Theopompus may have seen a later treaty instead. Several more will be signed over the course of Achaemenid history. Finally, the style of writing on that monument was common in Ionia when the Peace of Callias was signed, and the Ionians would have had just as much reason to commemorate the peace as the Athenians. The monument inside the Athenian Empire, then eventually made its way back to Athens. Coincidentally, 
This style of writing is basically the style of the Greek alphabet still in use today, just without lowercase letters. The 465 after the Battle of Eurymedon camp relies heavily on Plutarch, who relied on a collection of 4th century writers and historians. This argument is probably the most flawed, but it also has the most individual sources to back it up. Most writers who offer a date seem to have associated the Peace of Callios with the Battle of the Eurymedon. The suggestion is that Xerxes signed a treaty following the disastrous defeat and agreed to stay out of Athenian business. However, this is heavily undermined by all of the events that followed. If Xerxes and Callios really negotiated a settlement in 465, then Athens clearly had no intention of abiding by this treaty, because they immediately went back to raiding the coast of Cilicia and Phoenicia, and they were invading Egypt and Cyprus within another five years. Obviously, this makes the 465 position pretty weak aside from the abundance of ancient sources repeating it. Remember, just because a bunch of people say that it happened on a given date doesn't mean that an event actually happened then if there's no proof other than them just saying it. The mythicist camp would usually point to this as evidence that the piece was just a popular myth, but the 465 believers can point to one of two explanations. The weaker position is that Artaxerxes refused to affirm his father's treaty with Callios and hostilities resumed. There's no evidence for this, but it has been suggested. The stronger suggestion is that the resumption of hostilities neatly coincides with Cimon falling out of favor in Athenian politics. Callias was actually Cimon's brother-in-law, and the idea that the peace of Callias was an arrangement favored by Cimon and thus opposed by his political rivals, who dominated the late 460s and early 450s, is not far-fetched. Put a pin in that concept. But it doesn't explain why things calmed down in 449. Which brings us to the last camp. Those who think that the Peace of Callias was made official in 449 following the death of Cimon and the Athenian withdrawal from Cyprus. It is simultaneously the least frequent date in the ancient sources, and the one that makes the most sense. There was a peace between Athens and Persia after 449. It was affirmed in a universally acknowledged treaty by Artaxerxes' son, Darius II, decades later. This is the narrative provided by Diodorus, and somewhat crucially, the narrative most modern historians suspect was used by Diodorus's favorite Greek historian, Ephorus of Cimae. Ephorus was well regarded for centuries, even though his universal history is now lost aside from a few choice quotes. He was still in circulation during the Byzantine period, and wouldn't you know it, the Byzantine sources fall into the 449 camp as well. Ephorus also lived in the very early 4th century, before most of the sources for the other two camps were written. 
The evidence against the 449 date is simply that more sources with specific dates mention 465, and the general arguments of the mythicist camp. I've already addressed the big holes in the mythicist's logic, and the key detail is that most of the sources that mention the piece, or make a vague allusion to it, don't mention a date at all, and can't be said to fall into one camp or another. You have Ephorus and Ephorus-influenced historians with 449, and you have a collection of others arguing 465, but you have many, many more who don't offer a date at all. I, like a lot of modern historians in the last 30 years, follow the logic put forward by Ernst Badian, who wrote a paper on the Peace of Callias in 1987. The Peace of Callias not only existed, but it existed twice. The mythicist position is ultimately pretty weak, and there is clear evidence of a policy change after 449, which we'll see in the upcoming episodes of this show. The fighting between Athens and Persia did stop. However, Herodotus does say that Callias was in Susa in 465, and the Battle of the Eurymedon would have been a good opportunity to negotiate terms. The basic terms of the peace treaty were agreed on near the end of Xerxes' life, but changing political whims in Athens and Persia alike meant that negotiations fell through. The same basic agreement was finalized and acknowledged by both sides in 449, marking the end to the Long War. That just leaves me, Badion, and every historian since Callias got back to Athens wondering why the hell our sources for this treaty are so bad. Part of the problem lies in the nature of our sources. Many of the surviving writers were coming from a strongly pro-Athenian position, and modern historians suspect that the exact terms of the treaty were politically inconvenient for the Athenians. Of the few versions of the terms that have survived, only Diodorus records the Athenians making any kind of concessions, and even he admits that his description is only a summary of a larger treaty. The Athenian Empire, still officially an alliance of equal partners founded at Delos, was premised entirely on fighting against Persia. If Athens made peace with Persia, technically, the Delian League should come to an end. Of course it didn't, but the peace treaty still looked bad as more and more of the supposed allies rebelled against Athens. The exact language of the treaty was probably also problematic. Despite some modern historians' attempts to downplay the Greek wars, this was without a doubt the biggest Persian defeat we've seen up to this point. Artaxerxes needed a way to spin it and would have followed the models available to him, Egyptian and Mesopotamian treaties. In those older treaties, the language was always carefully worded to make it sound like the king wasn't actually losing anything. In this case, that meant using weasel words to make it sound like the Athenians hadn't actually gained anything. 
Again, not a great look for Athens. So if you're writing to glorify Athens 20, 30, 50, or 100 years later, you might not be too explicit with the details of this story, and that has colored history ever since. But since we're accepting the existence of this piece, and I've more or less laid out why googling it too many times leaves you with a great big pile of WTF, what does it actually say, and what does that mean for the history of Persia? Different ancient summaries give the distance in different terms of travel by foot or by horseback, and use different geographic landmarks. But Diodorus still provides the best account. All the Greek cities are to live under laws of their own making. The satraps of the Persians are not to come nearer to the sea than a three days journey, and no Persian warship is to sail inside Phacelis or the Chianian rocks. And if these terms are observed by the king and his generals, the Athenians are not to send troops into the territory over which the king is ruler. To put that in more familiar terms, the Persians could not enforce their will on the Greek cities or collect tribute from them without their consent. The satraps, meaning the armies that they commanded, could not come within 60 miles of the Aegean Sea and could not sail along the western coast of Anatolia. In turn, the Athenians would cease all hostilities and stop raiding Cilicia, Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Egypt. Some reports of the treaty say that the Persian army could not cross the Halys River, which some historians have interpreted as an additional clause about a royal army marshaled from many provinces. Obviously, the entirety of provinces like Phrygia and Lydia are on the Greek side of the Halys. Crucially, the Greek cities were allowed to live under their own laws, but there is no language about independence. On paper, Artaxerxes remained the sovereign, ruling over those cities. They just had the privilege to make their own laws, pay no tribute, and form their own separate independent alliances. Of course, Athens would see to it that those alliances were exclusively within the Delian League, and there was an understanding, either implicitly or explicitly, that Athens was allowed to intervene anywhere where the great king did not collect tribute. If they rebelled against Athens, military retribution was still on the table. Back in Persian territory, we don't have any written record of how Artaxerxes spun this treaty and its concessions, but Persian artwork contains some hints. Seals used by administrative officials to sign documents regularly depicted Persian warriors killing Greek hoplites. Artaxerxes continued to portray Greeks as his tribute bearers and subjects in palace artwork at Persepolis. And perhaps the most important for imperial propaganda and the Achaemenids' claim that Ahura Mazda granted their family dominion over the world money was finally flowing from Athens. In Achaemenid politics, there was nothing contradictory about letting a hard-fought rebellion 
have some autonomy in exchange for settling down, paying taxes, and not killing any more Persians. We just saw that in Egypt, when Inaros' son was allowed to remain the ruler of Morea, and Amirtius remained king of the marshes, a position that went on to be inherited by his son. We also saw it in Ionia after the Ionian Revolt, when Mardonius swept through and allowed the cities there to become democracies if they wished. Athens sent some diplomatic gifts that could be interpreted as tribute, but more importantly, Athenian merchants could now flood into the Egyptian and Phoenician ports where they had to pay taxes to the great king. It didn't entirely make up for the losses of Ionian taxes and natural resources, but on an ideological and legal level, Artaxerxes granted that freedom to the Ionians as a privilege, while he forced the Athenians to pay up when they came to trade. It's a very, very narrow tightrope woven entirely out of technicalities, but for propaganda purposes, it would suffice. Under the exact terms of the treaty, Artaxerxes didn't even have to give up his grandfather's claim to Athenian earth and water from all the way back in 510 BC. For Athens, all of this couldn't have come a moment too soon. Their truce with Sparta expired in 449 as well, and the Spartans immediately launched an invasion of Delphi in a sub-conflict called the Second Sacred War, because of Delphi's religious importance to the Greeks. This reopened Athenian conflict with Sparta just in time for Thebes and the region of Boeotia to successfully rebel and leave the Delian League in 447. Then the large island of Euboea revolted immediately after, but it was recaptured by Athens, while Megara, which had allied with Athens at the start of all of this, went over to Sparta's side and left Athens in 446. At that point, Callias was called in once again to negotiate, this time with Sparta. He and the Spartan kings negotiated a 30-year truce. Now, it will only last for 14 years, but it was enough to end the First Peloponnesian War. Artaxerxes mostly kept out of Greek affairs immediately after agreeing to the Peace of Callias, but he and his satraps were absolutely monitoring the situation in Greece. This just leaves us with a little time for reflection. Whatever political spin each side was putting on this treaty, in practical terms, it was a massive loss. Artaxerxes saw that war with Athens was nothing but a drain on his resources and cut his losses. But they were still losses. The Ionian Greek cities were gone. The Aegean Islands were gone. None of this propaganda could account for the loss of Macedon and Thrace either. Playing a blame game here is almost impossible. Who was at fault? Was it Xerxes for invading? Probably not. In 480, conquering Greece looked like a natural outcome of Achaemenid policy. Perhaps you could blame him for the disaster at Salome, but Xerxes was the king of a largely land-based empire. 
his naval advisors almost unanimously said to wipe out the Greeks at Salome, so he did. If anything, blame would fall to those advisors. Maybe you could blame Mardonius for pressing a new offensive in 479 rather than just consolidating their gains in northern Greece, but we don't actually know what his orders were. If he was told explicitly to keep campaigning, then blame falls back to Xerxes. But the utter disaster at Plataea seems more like a joint failure of Mardonius for charging an enemy he couldn't see and Artabazos for not backing him up. Of course, we know that's not the story that Artabazos told Xerxes, so it's an unfair assessment. Really, I don't think anybody in the Persian camp could be blamed for what came next. Even if they lost, who in their right mind would have predicted that the squabbling Greek cities would hold together for long enough to launch a counteroffensive, or that Athens would spin a counteroffensive into a centralized naval alliance against Persia even without Spartan support? Who could have guessed that that alliance would solidify into an Athenian empire? Well, that one might have been more obvious by the time it happened. But so many things had to fall into place that it just could not be anticipated. If Badian's theory about the Peace of Callias is correct, then Xerxes did the responsible thing and tried to bring things to an end when it seemed like he couldn't carry on. But Athens could and did press their advantage in spite of Persian goals. Again, nobody's really at fault besides Athens, and they had more or less been winging it with the startling success for 20 years. No, looking back doesn't do much from 449, but looking forward says a lot. We will see in the coming episodes that the Peace of Callias led Artaxerxes and his subordinates to pursue more diplomatic and economic relations with Greece, preferring to engage in proxy wars rather than direct intervention. Increasingly, this put Greek affairs in the hands of the satraps of Lydia, Phrygia, and the rest of Anatolia, as such day-to-day -day business didn't merit royal attention. In the long term, this will eventually blow up in the Achaemenid house's face. But by the time that happens, the solution will arguably be the single greatest factor in the Kingdom of Macedon's imperial successes. So if we can't blame the state of things in 449 on Artaxerxes' predecessors, does that ultimately leave Artaxerxes I responsible for the fall of the Persian Empire? I don't think so, at least not any more than his father. However, he did set the stage and implement the policies that his children and grandchildren would continue to use with disastrous consequences. It's their fault for using them, but I do think the Peace of Callias and Artaxerxes' policies going forward take us into a new phase of Persian history. It's not imperial decline. Yet. But the age of expansion is over. So far as we know, the Achaemenids will not be claiming any new territory on any of their borders.
Those borders will fluctuate quite a bit for the next hundred years of narrative. But Darius and Xerxes saw them to their greatest extent. Artaxerxes is now tasked with maintaining the empire his forefathers built. So naturally, the next stop in our story is a dramatic challenge to his rule. Next time, I'll dive into the story that Theseus has been trying to tell since Artaxerxes came to power, and deal with the kind of sad life story of Megabyzos, satrap of Assyria. Until then, thank you all so much for listening. If you want more information about this podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. There you'll find things like my bibliography, the Achaemenid family tree, and the support page where you can find different ways to financially support this project. That includes one-time payments through Stripe or a subscription through Patreon, where a monthly price gets you access to additional content like ad-free listening and bonus episodes. Of course, there are free ways to support the show, but absolutely nothing is better than word of mouth. Get out there on social media and spread the word about how much you enjoy the history of Persia. I mean, come on, we're almost 70 episodes into this thing. Clearly you're into it too. Tell your friends. You can tell them on Twitter at History of Persia, or go to Facebook and Instagram where I am at History of Persia Podcast. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, 
planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com.